0: Welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey,
1: Cops and Writers, thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I'll be your host for today's show. My first order of business to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Frank Carson, Francis Sheldrick, Kathleen Donnelly, Frank Ross, Gary Edginton, J.K. Doan, Kathleen Kovachik, and Richard Tolls. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go on over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers. I would also like to thank all of you who have purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. Today's show is going to be a wee bit different. My good friend and fellow podcaster Vic Ferrari had me on his show. NYPD through the looking glass a while ago and today's show is a special rebroadcast of that episode. So today I'm in the hot seat. I hope you enjoy this special episode with Vic Ferrari interviewing me. In today's episode we discuss growing up on the south side of Chicago and the influences that got me interested in a job as a cop. My internship with the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department while I was in college. My path to becoming a Milwaukee police officer the different positions I held on MPD as a copper and sergeant, being in charge of special units, including undercover operations, some of the most stressful events on the job, post-retirement for me including writing novels, consulting, public speaking, and podcasting. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast.
0: Retired NYPD Detective Vic Ferrari, and welcome to NYPD Through the Looking Glass, where you'll get unique insight into the New York City Police Department. Before we get started, please check out my Amazon author page, where you'll find my series of behind-the-scenes NYPD books for $10 paperback and $2.99 ebook download, including the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. Today's guest is a retired 25-year veteran of the Milwaukee Police Department. And manages the Facebook group, Cops and Writers. I want to welcome retired Milwaukee Police Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell. Hey, Patrick, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Vic. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on your show.
0: Well, likewise, you were nice enough to have you took pity on me and had me on your show. And I really appreciate (laughs) it. That got my career boost. Patrick, tell our audience about yourself.
1: Oh, what's to say, I just turned 59 a couple days ago, so I'm inching towards that 6-0 mark. Uh, let's see, I joined the Milwaukee Police Department in January 16 of 1995. That was day one in the academy. Before that, I uh, I'm originally from Chicago, born and raised there as a wee lad. Both my parents are Irish immigrants, and we found our way to Wisconsin when I was in high school. So went to high school in Fort Atkinson. I went from Chicago (laughs) to this little town in Wisconsin and oh my God. I I thought I (laughs) it was I mean, you know what it's like going to a a Catholic school, you know, a grammar school. Yeah. You know, you wear the uniform, there's nuns, there's priests. I go to public school in the middle of nowhere and kids are wearing concert t shirts and ripped up jeans and I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know you could do such a thing, you know. It's like, wow. And the quality of education wasn't even close. The Catholic schools, I mean, the algebra that I took in seventh grade was like sophomore or junior algebra when I went to Wisconsin, to this little town. Not even in the same realm. And it allowed me to be lazy. You could kind of pick and choose your own classes. Where I was on track, I registered for Notre Dame, and that was ran by um, monks, you know, wearing the robes, the whole shooting match. Oh, yeah. And you know it's like okay, you have four years of math, four years of English, four years of science for you. You know, you know, I go to Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. And it's like, well, you only have to take one year of you know like this or that, and you can take electives. And I'm like, I'll take whatever's the easiest. You know,
0: <laughs> I want so that's what I did, and well, I paid do. the piper later. Pardon? I said that. What? That's what kids do. You, you give them oh, a hard right. choice and an easy choice. The kids gonna take the easy choice.
1: All day long, and I was no different than any of them, that's for sure. So that's what I did. Uh, worked two full time jobs after high school. I worked in grocery stores, but they were union shops, so I actually made really good money for, you know, the time I was probably making, oh, geez, about seven, eight bucks an hour. That was, that was fat money back then in the eighties. And, I always had an inclination that I wanted to be a cop. I like, you know, like cop TV shows and all that. And when I was a little kid in Chicago, I saw like all kinds of cool cop stuff happening, like in real time, you know, they served a search warrant on our neighbors, you know, doing stuff like that. You're just like, you never forget that when you're a little kid, you see the, the, the blue lights flashing and the cop cars going to a hundred miles an hour down your street, you know, chasing somebody or something. You're like, Oh yeah, I want to do that. That, that looks awesome. So I go to UW-Whitewater because I got really sick of working two full-time jobs. And I quit one job, and I kept the other one. I stayed in the grocery business, and that financed all of my college. You know, it it worked out really well for me. I was the night manager at Piggly Wiggly uh, grocery store when I was going to college. So that, that financed all the bulk of my education. And then when I was in college, I interned with the Milwaukee County Sheriff's Department. And that really opened my eyes. I was just like, holy cow, this is like the best job ever. You know, I started out in the jail. And it was like July or August. And it was so freaking hot. And they didn't have air conditioning. The only part that had air conditioning, there was a federal wing, and they got, like, federal money, so they had (laughs) air conditioning. But the rest of the building was, like, something out of, like, a movie. You know, it was super overcrowded. There's mattresses on the floors of the cells. You know, there was, like, five or six cats to a cell. I mean, they just shoved them in there. And it was forced air. There was air moving through. But I remember my first day, I walked in there, and I was immediately hit with the smell of B.O., piss, and shit. And wow. I was like, oh, what a cocktail. And i like, oh, my God. I, you, know, you just walk in and it just hits you over the head. and But you know what? You get used to it after a while. And then
0: uh, from there. It's funny. Go ahead. No, no, no I was just. It's funny you should say that about the cells. Every NYPD precinct has jail cells. 10, right, same in Milwaukee. cells in the back. And yep. We don't use them unless Bronx Central Booking fills up with prisoners, and then they call it, they start lodging out, mm. and I remember doing that a handful of times, and just as you said, like, I knew at that point I never wanted to be a correction officer or oh a, my God, yes. jail guard, or just like you said, it's it's four or five guys sometimes in a tiny cell, yep. and, and and just the smell, because they're there for days. Ugh.
1: It's just, yeah, it's not the creme de la creme that's getting arrested. You know, a lot of these people, you know, go months v- before they see a shower. You know, they're wearing socks that they got, you know, for Christmas two years ago or some shit like that. They haven't washed yet. You know, it's, it's it's horrible. So God bless our correction officers. My hat's off to you. I would not want that job. But eventually I got out on the road and I worked different shifts. And, you know, just working with the different characters, you know, this, this is the era where there was still Vietnam vets that were on the job. You know, this is the eighties. So, you know, it's, it, I interned in 86. So yeah, I, I got to work at the airport. I mean, all kinds of cool stuff. And it was just, it was an eye opener and I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to go, man. Graduated from college in 88 and I didn't get on the job till I was until 95. You know, it was back then it was really hard to get a police job. And I don't test all that great. So I wound up being a 24 hour manager at an IHOP. I wound up being a car salesman, a bartender. And then finally I got on the job. I was on the list for four years, the waiting
0: list. And that's with the Milwaukee police department.
1: Yeah. I got on with the city of Milwaukee. I interned with the sheriffs, but high insight. I'm glad I didn't get a job with the sheriffs because Back then you had to do like it could be anywhere from two to five years working in the jail before they let you out on the street and they were always short-handed and there was mandatory overtime. so you could be on you know patrolling the highway on the street or working in the airport and they're like, hey we need bodies and this is all seniority. so back to the jail you go on overtime and you know and you're literally stuck there for like a weekend or something. it's just oh it was terrible.
0: We'll be right back.
1: In Kenosha, Wisconsin, a motley collection of strangers come together to sit in judgment for what becomes the longest trial in state history. A man stands accused of murdering his wife by antifreeze poisoning. Along the way, these strangers find more in common than anyone expected, evolving into something beyond a simple jury of peers. One year later, they reunite, only to find that they've been poisoned by what suspiciously looks like antifreeze. Is this revenge for their verdict? or forewarning of something more sinister to come. The clock is ticking, and as time winds down, vengeance turns wickedly ironic. Inspired by the real-life jury experience of author Ken Humphrey, The Breakfast Jury is a fast-paced summer novel guaranteed to leave readers guessing until the last page. Pick up this murder mystery now at KenHumphrey.com. Peek behind the curtain of a sordid murder that will make you wonder, did that really happen? Again, that's KenHumphrey.com.
0: That's what everybody says. It's had a. It's either worked with um, a county sheriff's office, or my younger brother worked Department of Corrections on Rikers Island. It's you. They're always short bodies. And always. You can't leave. Yeah, yeah. You're in jail. You might as well be an inmate. Yeah, and you don't get to see a judge. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like? So you hit the street. You you hit you hit the streets in '95, right? Yes. So what was that like for you?
1: Oh, it was awesome. I, I got sent when I was done with field training. Field training was six weeks with one FTO, you know, somebody that's kind of, that's a police officer that's showing you the ropes. I know that's different than New York. You have field training sergeants that actually take people out, right? The, the newbies. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not like that. It used to be detectives,
0: but then they got rid of them.
1: Okay. Yeah. For us, it's an FTO. You got paid an extra dollar an hour when you had a recruit. And you got a built-in thirty minutes of overtime where you'd have to fill out an eval on them at the end of the shift. So that was their incentive, quote unquote. And later on, I became an FTO, and you couldn't pay me enough for some of the rocks that I had. Oh my god, they just—some <laughs> of them were superstars, and some were just so dumb. Oh my god, you know, you're just like, I can't fix stupid. You know, I'm sorry. You know, just—and the other ones were. You know, it's like, what, are you a 20-year vet? How did you get so good in this short amount of time? It, it was amazing. But I uh, I uh wound up at District 5 on late shift, which was midnight to 8. That was my home for about six years, a little bit more. And that was one of the busiest parts of the city as far as, you know, I was in a um, squad, had a partner, and you answered calls for service most of the night. You know, you did get into some... If you were lucky enough and you knew the right people, sometimes you got into some fun stuff, like doing plain clothes stuff, you know, and that was more or less I would fill in, you know, I'd have a buddy that went to the tavern car. You know, we call it the tavern car. It's a licensed premise car where they'd go after taverns. And you know, obviously that was plain clothes. Either you're going to sting the tavern or you're going to go after the people that are in there. You know, they're trying to gather intel and you're going undercover. And if somebody was sick, this one buddy of mine his partner was sick. He's like, yeah, have O'Donnell. I'm like, Oh, cool. So, you know, I got to go play secret squirrel, you know, have some fun, you know, all that kind of good stuff. But for the most part, when I was at district five on late shift, it was all taking assignments and you know, there was some proactive stuff too. Every night was a chase and I'm no lie. Every night, one of my partners or me was in some kind of car chase or more than one. It was just nonstop fun. And at least one shooting a night, if not more. This is you know the crack wars. You know, we we're in like the high mid to high two hundred homicides for a year. And we were I think a little over a thousand non fatal shootings. So I mean it was just rock and roll time. Every night was just craziness
0: yeah I was researching that about Milwaukee, and I couldn't believe the crime statistics. It's almost like it's like a mini New York.
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, I think New York is safer per capita it's it's a lot safer.
0: <laughs> was there a lot of guns on the street back then?
1: Oh, a ton. Oh, just a ton. Like I said, you know I just <sighs> the criminality that was going on it was all most of it was over crack cocaine, you know we call it the crack wars. You know, you have drug dealers that were dealing in the wrong area. They would get killed. You had drug dealers that were selling, you know, ivory soap or uh, drywall, pieces of drywall. That will get you killed. That will put, you know, somebody's going to put a bullet in your head. Or, you know, you it's like, hey, there's a crack dealer over there on the corner. I know he's got money, so he's going to get jacked. You know, so now the shootout comes. Or the, you looked at my girl wrong in the club. Or the, you know, the stupid shit, you know, mom loves you more than me. Or, you know, you drank the last beer or you were cheating at cards. I mean, been to all those.
0: (laughs) What was back then? Like, what guns did you guys carry?
1: When I got hired, they were transitioning from the Ruger um, 357s that they could only put 38 caliber bullets in. And we transitioned over to the Glocks. They were model 22. They were the 40 cals. We transitioned over to the Glocks. So w- being a new recruit, you got the newest of everything. So we had Glocks. Our entire class had Glocks.
0: Why would they give you a 357 Magnum with thirty eights Like <laughs> I, don't I don't get know. that. Like wouldn't they just give you a 38 to shoot 30? I mean, I I know that you could fire 38 caliber rounds to a 357 Magnum, but why?
1: I think it was politics. I think somebody said that like the mayor didn't like the idea of You know, a bunch of dirty Harrys running around in his head. That's what he thought. So it was like, well, yeah, give him thirty eights instead. Schmuck. Yep, politics.
0: Oh, I don't get that. It's 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 just it. That makes no sense.
1: (laughs) No, it doesn't. But yeah, I mean, most of the old timers they they embraced the Glocks and even they liked them because you know it's a fifteen round magazine and you know one in the chamber so you got 16 rounds compared to the you know the six shooter and everybody you're arresting has a semi-automatic you know the days of the six shooters were huh. i mean yeah every now and then you'd bust somebody that had a revolver but we called them ghetto guns you know the handle had you know black electrical tape around them yeah you know, it's like that's why i get yeah. a kick out of movies and tv you know you have criminals with these really nice guns of like no not at all some wow. of them wouldn't even shoot you know they're all rusted out and shitty or whatever
0: or blow up in their hand or oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. or rounds that they found like doing a burglary that you know that oh, don't work and
1: oh they're putting you know they've got a 38 caliber uh revolver and they're putting they're squeezing like a 45 in there, or a 22 they're like all loose and stuff <laughs> like what is wrong with you dude it's never the same manufacturer, you know. You know, it's like you arrest somebody that's got a gun, or you know, there's some kind of gun offense, and you know, you bust it open. Almost never is it going to be like Winchester, you know, like nine millimeter, Luger nine millimeter, whatever. It's like a potpourri of different like uh, different uh, manufacturers and all that kind of stuff
0: that don't exist anymore. Yeah, <laughs> that's you true. Know, it, it's a company that went out of business in the fifties. I remember locking up a guy one time in a drug spot, and he had a. um, It was like a Mississippi gambler gun. I think it was a (laughs) thirty-eight long. I think was the round, if memory serves me correctly. And I'm like, I was a rookie cop. I didn't grow up around guns, so you know, it was like one of my first gun collars. I'm all excited, and I'm trying to open this thing. You know, (laughs) one of the old timers goes, "No, it's front break." And I was like, "What the fuck is this? Like, this looks like something Wyatt Earp would have. (laughs) Ghetto gun." To quote you, You're right. Ghetto guns. Now, I was reading your biography and I see you had quite an interesting career. Tell us about that tense standoff you had with the guy that held a rifle to his kid's head. <laughs> yeah, this all
1: revolves around, and you know it too. The job is interesting, but the people that you worked with are was a lot more interesting. You know, some of the characters that you worked with there's, his name was uh, Robert Julius. We call him Wojo. And God rest his soul, he died. He was in his late thirties, early forties of uh, pancreatic cancer, but he could have been a stand up comic. I and mean, he was one of those guys that would walk into the bar. You know, you'd have choir practice at eight o'clock in the morning after your shift, and he would just say something. It would take two minutes and everybody would be just crying, laughing. Oh my God. He was so funny. And he hated overtime. He could not stand overtime. And sometimes, you know, you just don't have a choice. So it's a busy night. There's like a couple shootings here and there, you know, maybe a homicide and things calm down after about four or five o'clock in the morning. You know, it's like everybody gets to catch their breath. And I was one man and he was one man. We're the only two cars out of the district for late shift that only had one cop working. And we were the only ones available. Everybody else was inside with arrests. So it's like, all right. So you're kind of driving around on eggshells. It's like, I hope I don't see anything. I don't want to see anything. I just want to go home. You know, it's like you had a busy night and it's like, oh, please don't let anything stupid happen. So we get a call for a man shooting a rifle out a window. Now, this is like 7 o'clock in the morning. So that's a little unusual. You know, it's 7 o- Now, if it was 2 o'clock in the morning, it would be like... Mm-hmm yeah, okay, another day in the hood, you know, no big deal. We're surrounded by gunfire every night. And we and I'm like, okay. So the dispatcher is, you know, like 50. And I'm like, 50? And he's like, 51. And, you know, Wojo answers like, know. And it's like, okay. He was in the hole. He was snoozing. Yeah, so he, he got woken up. And it's like, okay, take the man with a rifle. And he says, oh, multiple callers for this one. You know, the dispatcher's being kind of funny, and I'm just like, oh, shit, this is real. If you have different people calling about the same thing, yeah, because a lot of times, you know what, that's like you have one caller saying, oh, yeah, man with a rifle, man with a machine gun, man with a machete, you know, whatever, and it doesn't come to fruition. But when you start getting multiple callers from different, you know, different addresses all saying the same thing, then you know you're in the shit. And it's like, all right, great. So now I'm really awake, and I'm like... So I'm kind of far away from the hitch and it's a four person, um, apartment. You know, there's a lower level with two apartments and a upper level with two apartments. And I know where it is. I have it in my mind's eye. I've been there before. And I tell Wojo, I'm like, Hey, park, you know, whatever, like a block away. We'll walk up on this. We'll all be tactical. Cool. You know, we're, we're going to be safe with this. Right. And he's like, yeah, right, brother. And he just starts laughing at me. And I'm like, mother, I know what he's going to do. He pulls up in front of the house, which is the last thing you want to do, especially if somebody's got a rifle. I wouldn't go to a barking dog. I would never pull up in front. That's one of the first things you learn as a rookie. You know, you don't want to get ambushed. So (laughs) he pulls up. So I get there, and there, there was one sergeant working, and he says, I'm literally on the other end of town. He said, it's going to take me a while to get there. Just, you know, keep me advised. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. And, you know, SWAT, our tactical enforcement unit, they didn't start till, if they didn't have a warrant, a lot of times they wouldn't start till eight, eight or nine o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it would be later, depending what they had. You know, they have training schedules and all that. So right. it's just us. So I pull up where we're supposed to meet. Of course, Wojo's not there. I pull out the 12 gauge shotgun. We didn't have uh, rifles back then. So I'm like, all right, I'll take the gauge. And I'm going up against the building and I'm trying to raise him on the air and he's not answering. So now I'm worried. I'm like, oh shit, is he okay? And the dispatcher, you know, catches that and he's like, yeah, 51, where are you? 51, At 50, let me know how 51 is. And I'm just like, oh shit. So now I'm speeding, every- everything's going fast forward. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hugging the wall line of this building and sure enough, there's Wojo's car right in front. I mean, <laughs> he's like right there and I'm like, son of a bitch. So I go inside and I'm being you know, all, you know, tactical about it. I'm clearing all the hallways and stuff by myself and I could hear Wojo talking upstairs. I'm like, Oh, thank God he's alive. So he, he's okay. So I inch up there. I got the gauge and he looks at me. And like I said before, he's just Mr. Funny Guy in some of the most, like, stressful situations in the world. He still had a smile on his face. This time he didn't. And I'm like, okay, this is bad. So he yeah, kind of gives stop. me the nod of, like, check this shit out. And he's got his gun out. He almost never took his gun out. I'm like, who are you, Barney Fife? What's wrong with you? You know, it's like mine was out every night. And I kind of peek into a bedroom. There was a smaller apartment. There's a bedroom. There's a guy wearing just as boxers laying on his back in bed and he's sweating profusely and he's got the thousand mile stare going and he's got a rifle in his hand. And the, the end of the rifle, the, the end of the barrel is at this, like, I don't know, six or seven year old kid just whimpering next to him. And I'm just like, son of a biscuit. Oh, this couldn't be any worse. So, you know, Wojo actually had somewhat of a rapport with this guy So I was the cover officer and it's like, well, I want to shoot this guy, but his finger wasn't on the trigger. So I'm like, oh boy, you know, it's like if the finger goes to the trigger, I'm going to have to shoot him, but I've got a shotgun. That's not the ideal weapon for this. When he's got, you know, this kid pulling so close to him, I don't want to hit the kid. So it's like, okay, I could transition to my pistol, but I've got nowhere to go with the shotgun because we didn't have slings. And I'm like, and I don't know if there's anybody else in this room, if he's going to attack me. No, he's going to get the shotgun, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was just a cluster, you know, and I'm just, I was sweating bullets. And then, you know, Wojo kept on looking at his watch while he's trying to negotiate with this guy. And, you know, I go over the air and I tell the dispatcher what we have. Well, now the cavalry's coming. You know, you can hear the sirens coming a mile away. You know, the tax squad, they get out of their tactical pajamas and put on their gear and, you know, do whatever they do. Everyone's screaming to the scene and Wojo's just, he keeps on looking at his watch and he looks at dude and he's just like, listen, he said, fucker, I am not going to be here all day long with this shit. He said, you hear all these sirens? This is the circus. You know, there's going to be the SWAT team, the negotiators, everybody. They, who knows? Maybe they'll even gas you. I don't know. But he said, you can guarantee another four or five hours. And then he said, then I have to take care of the arrest. He says, I'm not going to be here all day. He says, "Put down that fucking gun. Give me the kid. Walk over here like a man, and let me goddamn handcuff you, so we so we're not here all day." And the guy looked at him. He says, "Okay." Puts down the rifle. Walks over. Puts his hands behind his back. And you know, of course, yeah, you know, I've got the giant, ginormous sigh of relief. And we're walking out, and everybody's rushing. I said, "I've got the rifle in one hand, and I've got the shotgun in the other hand." And you know, and he's walking the arrestee out and it was like yeah we got the story about serge
0: what was the guy's story was he nuts or yeah he
1: was drunk he was, Why was he, sh- he, he was crazy but he i think it was like a ruger mini 14 and he emptied it we didn't know it was empty so i'm like oh yeah, thank you know, god you, you never know no and it's like great i would have shot a guy that had an empty gun i mean if his finger was on the trigger i definitely would have but it was just one of those situations where you know through the grace of god i didn't have to and i was super happy about it but like i said wojo just hated the overtime you know was, you know we had to process the arrest and i think a detective talked to him but he's like he's just crazy the guy's nuts
0: right well, you know, and people don't realize that in law enforcement, everyone's answer is, well, cops need more training. Cops are trained enough. It's sometimes people don't want to hear this, but in, in certain instances, there's no right answer. Like you just said, no. you did everything right. You parked a block away. You crawled up there with a shotgun because you'd been told that the yep. guy's shooting a rifle out the window. You go up there, and now, you know, how are you supposed to know that now— there's a guy he's got a rifle on a kid and like you said where do I put this shotgun if I start moving around he might yep. start shooting at me if I start going for my my pistol there's no right answer sometimes it's just not
1: no police l- live in the world of gray you know it's like you have you train as much as you can as best as you can you know and I'm I'm a proponent of training you know the, that's that's great but nobody could train for what just happened, what I just explained. And that doesn't make me unique in any way, shape or form. You know, thousands of cops have gone through scenarios like that. And it it always, not always, but most of the time it it just works itself out. And we're just lucky like that sometimes.
0: Right, but it's just there's so many variables in every situation, the weapon you have, the weapon your adversary has, the conditions, You know, if it was raining, I mean, it's just, there's just so many things that factor in that people just don't take into consideration. They just think the cops go in there and light somebody up and it's not like that. Right.
1: No, no. I mean, there are situations where you do have to go in right away and there's, there's no getting around it and somebody does wind up getting shot and killed, but there's other times where you're outside. Okay. It's Wisconsin. I mean, I was with my partner. We get a call for a uh, shooting and we know it's a dope house we're walking up on the house and we hear a shotgun rack. It's like, son of a bitch. So I find cover behind this ginormous tree and I've got the shotgun and I have a dialogue going with whoever's inside. You know, we're trying to get them to come out to us and surrender, but we don't know if somebody's inside bleeding. You know, it's a call of a shooting. So it's like, okay, what now? But we heard the shotgun rack. We don't have a shield. We don't have Dick. You know, it's like just him and I on a busy whatever night it was. But I'm talking to dude for close to two hours. There's no, I'm standing in a snowbank that's literally up to my knees for two hours. I felt like a human, like, copsicle. You know, <laughs> I was just frozen. <laughs> and I'm wearing, you know, the leather jacket and the cool furry hat that we had back then. You know, I love the furry hat. Oh. My wife thinks they look dorky. But I I think they're cool. And, you know, finally the SWAT team gets there and they pull us out. And I'm debriefing with a captain from the detective bureau and uh, one of the SWAT sergeants. And I'm, I'm literally frozen. I can't feel my feet. I can't feel my toes. I mean, I'm in the worst mood ever. I'm like, why did you pull me out? I had a rapport going with this guy. You know, blah, blah. blah. And it's like, well, we do things. So he finally, I'm like, fuck this. And he just looks at me and he says, well, you don't have to be like that officer, this captain. And I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. I said, if you want to hear more of this, keep me in here. If you don't want to hear this, let me go, please. So he let me go. And they had a standoff for like four or five hours. And of course, there was a shotgun inside. It was a dope house. There was no shooting. Somebody got ripped off. So what they do is, you know, it's like, okay, again, they either wasn't the right amount of drugs or it really wasn't even drugs. And it's like, okay, well, I'll just say there's a shooting inside. So I know the cops will go there and bust them. So that's what happened.
0: Yeah. People use the police, unfortunately, to do their dirty work calling gun runs on somebody they don't like, or like oh. you said, a 911 call to a crack house just because, like you said, they got ripped off or they got a kick in the ass for hanging around too long. Or yes, exactly. Whatever
1: yeah, whatever the beef was, you know, then that's that's going to happen. Yeah, it's absolutely.
0: So how long into your career before you got promoted to supervisor?
1: Oh, <sighs> I took the test after I had a little over six years on. And they hired a bunch, but I didn't make it. And then there was another test like a year later, which was unheard of. I I made it to like, I think my number was in the high seventies and they promoted it into the low seventies. So I just missed it by a few people. And then the second time I took the test, it was the same exact test. I answered everything the same and I was number 12. And my partner was number 11, so he never let me forget that. And he says, yeah, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm like, yeah, by one, really? Come on. So I made it to sergeant, and I stayed at sergeant for the length of my career.
0: And you you worked in a lot of – you supervised some specialized units, right? I did. Um, When I went late shift,
1: the – you know, every chief has their thing – they want to, you know, I think they just like, they have one of those eight balls that you just shake up and just throw it on the ground. And it's like, okay, this is what, this is how I'm going to run the department today. You know, they have to have their own mission statement. They have to have their own restructuring of the department. You know, it just, they have to put their label on it. Yeah. Even if it's working, they still have to F with it. They got to mess with it. And one part was every shift is going to have a gang unit. Well, I was on late shift and kind of by default, nobody else wanted it. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be the gang sergeant. So I, my gang unit was probably like four or five guys. It wasn't many. And because I had that training, you know, the coolest part about that was having all the training and you weren't a slave to the radio where you could actually go out and do like proactive stuff. That was fun. I thought that was a blast. And I had good cops. I had great cops. Then I went late power and and lay power was seven at night till three in the morning. And I was in charge of, we had like an anti arm robbery, like suppression unit and all this other stuff. It was more or less whatever the captain wanted. Okay. We're getting killed with gas station robberies. You know, it's like, do something about it, Pat. And it was like, okay. So I grabbed my band of merry men and we'd go off and hopefully take care of the problem. Yeah. And it was just, it was a ton of fun because again, Maybe half my shift took assignments, and the other half didn't. They were on special cars. you know I was in charge of the tavern car at night you know it just you know if there was a problem tavern where there was people getting killed on the regular, you know the captain would be like, "Hey, I need that bar shut down and I'm like, say no more I'd go in I'd give them tickets for health code violations, you know, not having the exit sign lit up, not having the occupancy permit, not having you know, it was kind of like the Al Capone thing. It's like if we can't get you doing all the dirty stuff, I'll I'll nitpick you to death. And sometimes that worked actually. You know, or you know, it's like your third or fourth homicide in a month, and it's like the city's finally like, all right, I guess we're gonna take your license.
0: And you know, people don't realize that with a lot of bars and restaurants, especially the licensed premise or unlicensed pres- premise that stay <laughs> open late, you know, the more problems you have in these places, bring the cops, and the cops yep. don't. You know, they're going to shut you down, like you said, a homicide, or people are always getting thumped out front. The funny thing in New York is, like, the mob control bars and clubs, like, you didn't fuck around in those places because the bouncers would take you outside and beat the living daylights out of you and dodge oh, okay. blocks or get into a fight in one of those places because you could lose your life afterwards for, for bringing the cops to that place. Oh, okay. That's the way it was in New York. I mean, and then the other places, mm. just the morons that would just constantly do shit. We would, um, if the precinct didn't shut you down, we had vice. Well, first they would call public morals and vice. And, like, exactly like you said health code violations. Yep. A- any type of violation, they'd nitpick them to death and then they would just shut them down. Yeah. And sometimes well, gangs we would. What did you have there? Oh, um, we got, like, the Midwestern
1: ones. We didn't have bloods and crypts. We had, like, gangster disciples. You know, the people and folks was okay. the general, you know, tag for them. You know, on the south side, it was mostly Hispanic gangs where you would have like Spanish Cobras, Latin Kings, uh Brown Pride, Mexican Posse. You know, there was a, those were like the main ones. Then on the north side, the black gangs were gangster disciples, black gangster disciples. There was like crazy, insane gangster disciples. And there was uh, vice lords.
0: So that's an influence from Chicago, right?
1: Absolutely. It was all imported from Chicago and Gary, Indiana. We got a lot of that. A ton.
0: Yeah, I heard Gary is a rough
1: place. Oh, Gary's a sewer. Oh, my God. I, I feel bad for anybody that lives there. I don't know what it's like now, but, brother, you know, you didn't want to stop there if you're running out of gas. I'll take my chances. I'll keep driving.
0: See, I grew up in New York City. I know nothing. About the Midwest, I mean Chicago a little bit from what I see on documentaries, and then you know when we were going to talk. I started looking into Milwaukee. I had no idea, you know Gary, Indiana. I'd heard of it. I didn't know it was a rough area. I didn't think oh. anything in Indiana was a rough area. To be honest with you, I mean I saw Hoosiers. You know, no, no yeah. one was fucking around in that. <laughs> yeah, Gary it,
1: it, in the eight, in the nineties, and two thousands, it was just a just a sewer of a city. Oh my god. You know, if you look, if you Google like their crime rates, I don't know what it's like now. Hopefully, it's better, but boy, whew, it, it's a scary, scary town.
0: So there were a lot of homicides, you know, per capita in Milwaukee, and you, by your biography, you were involved in a lot of homicide investigations. Do any come to mind?
1: I, they all become a blur, you know. It, my, I was on field training, on the wagon. It was probably my second or third day on the street, and we got a call for a stabbing. This is, like, again, 7 o'clock in the morning. We're like, oh, come on, really? But my FTO loved overtime, so he was giddy. He was as giddy as a little schoolgirl, and I'm just like, really, dude? I just want to go home. So, you know, they give us a description, blackmail, white T-shirt, black jeans, running northbound on 12th Street from whatever address it was, armed with a butcher knife. And we're like, okay, we're getting there. Sure enough, there's dude running up the sidewalk and it was just one of those things. It's like, we all just like locked eyes. It was like out of a movie. So my FTO slams on the brakes. I jump out of the wagon. I'm, I'm in the passenger seat. I draw down with my pistol and he's running at me with his butcher knife. And he's like the white t-shirts just covered in blood. And I'm just like, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to kill this guy. I'm going to have to shoot him. So I scream some like police stop or whatever I say. And the guy, I think he sensed that I was probably more scared than him. And he just, like a deer in, in the lights, he just stopped, drops the knife, falls flat on his face. My partner, you know, my FTO goes over there and hooks him up. And, you know, we get him up and he, my FTO looks at me and he says, just so you know, usually they're running the other direction when we're coming. They're not running towards us. They're running away from us. And, you know, of course, he's 100% right. It was just just one of those things. But the cool part about that homicide, I mean, it's a homicide, not cool for the victim or the victim's family. This guy got stabbed in the armpit, which is a bad place to get stabbed. And it was over a card game. And there's pulmonary arteries in there that could get pierced. So I'm in the med unit, and... We call our ambulances med units with so the paramedics from the fire department. Those are like the real medics. They're amazing. And they've got two IVs going on this guy. They got his feet up in the air and he's just gurgling. And my FTO is just like, get a dying declaration from him. And he slams the, the doors of the med unit. And I'm like, I think I remember that part of the academy. I'm not a hundred percent sure. <laughs> so I'm like, who killed you? And all I'm just like, gurgle, 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 yeah. gurgle. And I'm like, okay. So we get to the hospital and it's amazing. When you go to a, a class, a level one or a class A or whatever they call a trauma center, I mean, they're, they're amazing. You know, they have this team yeah. of doctors, nurses and techs and it's a teaching college. You know, there's a medical school and you know, there's probably like three or four docs and one doc is like the conductor. He's in charge of all of it. Yeah. And he's kind of down by the guy's feet and he's making sure everybody's doing, you know, what they're supposed to be doing. So they get him kind of, um, they get him stabilized. And I look at it at the dock and I'm like, Hey, uh, is this guy going to make it? He says, shit. He said, if it was you or I, we'd been dead before we got here. He said, this guy's going to live forever. As soon as he says that boo, straight line, <laughs> it was like, Oh shit. Are you serious? So, yes. Totally serious. So. This goes on for, he, he coded three times. Then the final time, the doc that said, yes, he's going to live forever. Grabbed a scalpel, opened up his chest and got a rib spreader and started doing open heart massage right there. And here I am, I'm literally like six feet away and I'm thinking to myself, is this every night? Holy shit. What did I get myself into? You know, and he passed away. He died. And, you know, detectives come, the medical examiner comes, you know, blah, blah, blah. I I didn't get home that day till probably four or five in the afternoon. And I got home. I was still so jacked up. You know, I looked at my ex-wife and I'm like, this is the best job ever. I can't believe they're paying me to do this. This is awesome. This, I have a front row seat to the craziest stuff ever. But, you know, obviously every night was not that, obviously. But boy, it just... Yeah, it was it was incredible. Did he give you I was a name? super lucky. No, he just gurgled. I've only I took another dying declaration. I was on us. We were the backup for an undercover car. People were getting mugged in the in a city park, so we had a couple of undercovers just dressed as like normal people, and we were their backup. You know, we would swoop in and go get the bad guy once they you know give us the the code word or whatever the hell it was. And it it just, it was, it turned into a super busy night and the Sarge is like, you know what? We'll play reindeer games tomorrow. You know, we we gotta be cops tonight, you know? So everybody, you know, go get dressed back into your uniform and take catches, take assignments. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. So we're driving around and we hear just this volley of gunfire. It's probably 13, 14 rounds. You know, and we're like a block away and we're like, ooh. So, you know, the dispatcher just lights up. Yeah. Any number five car for the, you know, it's like, yeah, we're right here. We we could hear it too. You know, multiple callers, yada, yada, yada. What wound up happening was it was a bar called Larry's Lounge. I'll never forget it. One of the bigger drug dealers in town, he always wore twin shoulder holsters. He had two nine millimeters under each armpit when he went out. And, yeah, in a sport jacket. And he was there with his girl. Some poor schmuck, like, bumped into his girl or said the wrong thing or looked at her wrong. Words are exchanged inside the bar. Now now lead is flying. And the other guy has no gun. So he's running as fast as he can. He's running down an alley. Dude, drug dealer dude, empties one gun, throws it on the ground, empties another one. This guy was shot, like, I don't know, at least seven or eight times in the back and, you know, came out his uh, chest and he wound up on the sidewalk and we got there just as he was going between some houses and a gangway. He's like, you know, struggling to walk. And then he just falls down on his back. Cold Wisconsin night, but it wasn't snowing yet, but it was raining. And the steam was coming out of the bullet holes into this guy's chest. And, you know now a bunch of cops are there you know we clear the area guy's on his back and he ain't looking good at all and he looks at a gal that i went through the academy with and he says am i gonna die and she's like no you're gonna be fine you're gonna live hang on hang on and the paramedics behind her he's gonna like he does that (laughs) You know, he's like, he ain't gonna make it. You know, you know okay, they're working yeah. him, but they're like, no, he ain't gonna make it. Right. So I looked at him and I said, no, dude, you're gonna die. Who killed you? And he says, what do you mean? You know, now his eyes are huge. I said, you're not gonna make it. I said, who shot and killed you? We need to know. And he looked at me and he says, fuck you. I said, that's not the answer I'm looking for. Come on. I said, you're going home to Jesus or who knows what. I mean, you know, whatever your proclivity is. And he's just oh, like, man. Finally, he looks at me and he said, Scooby-Doo. And his eyes roll back in his head and he's dead. Scooby-Doo was the name of the drug dealer. So we spent
0: eight that's hours looking
1: for Scooby. We, I mean, we worked till like, oh, God, five, six, seven o'clock that night looking for Scooby. We didn't scoop him up that night, but we got him the second night.
0: Well, that's good.
1: good. Yep. But yeah, that's the only oh, that's other dying declaration I ever took. Oh yeah, that was a good one.
0: Well, speak. Well, speaking of homicides, a few years before you went into law enforcement, serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer was arrested <laughs> by the Milwaukee Police Department. Now he I'm was. sure you know guys that were involved in that case, or you've heard things. You got oh, anything? Because yes. that's the listeners want well, to hear. Well,
1: Annie Schwartz was the. Um, reporter who broke the story it was in district three i spent a year in district three i got transferred out of five and i again you know new chief i know let's transfer half the city around you know what could go wrong that that makes a ton of sense so i got caught up in that big transfer
0: this is everybody off
1: oh hell yeah you want to talk about a morale killer oh my god
0: They don't because get it. we're
1: all ver- we're all very territorial, you know, it's like, if you're happy where you're at, you don't want to leave, you know, it's, this is the best, you've got good chemistry going with your partners, you know, with your bosses, life is good. Why would somebody want to screw that up? But he did, but so be it. So I went to the district where this, um, where all the Dahmer stuff happened. And of course, you know, you got to go see the Dahmer building and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But Annie Schwartz, I had her on my uh, podcast. She was a reporter that broke the story. The way she explained it to me was, you know, when they went to his apartment and wound up arresting him, everyone's like, I can't believe this is happening. That's when they found the head in the refrigerator. You know, they one cop just opened the refrigerator and there's a human head just looking at him. That guy was never the same again, ever. But they're like, I believe that her, her source that's there is like Annie. You got to come down here right now. We've never seen anything like this before. This is Crazyville. This is like, this is something out of a movie. This is nuts. So she first she thought, well, they're pulling my leg. You know, it's like one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning. You're just being an asshole. And it's like, no, really, you need to get here. So. They didn't even have yellow tape up yet. They're just like walking through in slow motion through this apartment. Like, uh, okay, the more they looked, the more they found. And it's like, holy shit. There's Polaroid pictures everywhere of Dahmer, like doing stuff with these bodies and just, oh, just horrible stuff. And what happened was, you know, there was a knee jerk reaction from the mayor you know, we need to fire these guys. And the police chief was like, yeah, we need to fire these guys. So they fired them without any kind of due process. The ones that let that one guy, the Asian um kid go, you know, that's where that's when all the public outrage, you know, blah, blah. Of course you, you didn't know the whole story, you know, yada, yada, yada. And the two cops that got hemmed up in that and that got fired, one wound up working at a tavern. He bought a tavern because he was off the books. He was fired, you know, pending appeal. And he, um, it wound up being one of the city's biggest, like, cop bars. It was called Fuzzies. So everybody would go there to support him. So now it turns into, right. you know, police central. You know, so that that's what came out of that. And then the other officer got a job with a smaller town. It goes through the courts and they found in the officers' favors. They both won like multimillion dollar, you know, lawsuits, got their jobs back with back pay. One stayed on the job and the other one is like, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to go back to Milwaukee. But one of the two detectives that QP'd him, we called it interrogations QPs. It's called, you know, for questioning a prisoner. Yeah, one was this Big guy, big Irish guy. Uh, what was his name? Kennedy, Pat Kennedy, and he was like larger than life. He was probably about six foot four, six foot five, just a big dude. But probably one of the smoothest talkers I've ever met in my life, because he taught a couple of classes in the academy. And when you work at a busy district as a copper, you're bringing in arrests, you know, for the detectives, and you have to get them booked in, and you would wait until the detective would come in and these, you know, QP rooms were glorified, glorified, you know, broom closets. They're small. And, you know, it's a table, a metal table with a hook thing on the wall for the guy that's handcuffed in two chairs. That's, that's what it is. And these detectives were locked in with Jeffrey Dahmer for like, I think a couple of days, you know, obviously they took breaks, but. They were stuck with this guy for that long and they did a fabulous job. He he wouldn't stop talking. He wouldn't stop. You know, but they had their best detectives on the job. Like I said, this Kennedy guy, amazing. Mike Dubis. He retired out of the bureau as a captain. And he was just one of those guys that, you know, he'd show up to a scene and you're like, Yeah, this guy is squared away. He knows he knows what he's doing. He's he's really good. And then Kennedy, unfortunately, he passed away he He joined the Peace Corps after not right after the Dahmer stuff. it was a few years after, but he he quit being a cop and joined the Peace Corps. Then he wound up being a teacher at one of the local colleges, and he had a heart attack and died. I don't think he hit 60, you know, and just yeah, it 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 was so disturbing. One of the prosecutors that was prosecuting the case when it was all done and over with quit being a prosecutor, quit the DA's department and became a Jesuit priest. He was so effed up in the head. He's like, how can people be like this? So he was like looking for answers.
0: Well, did that go to trial or did he plead guilty right out of the box?
1: It went to trial as far as the insanity plea. He pled guilty to the homicides. There was, I think 14 or 15 and we know there's more, but he just, you know, in different states oh, too. Yeah. yeah. He, yeah, it wasn't as for, yeah, yeah, but it was, the trial was more or less, did he realize he was doing wrong when he was doing it? It was, the defense was going with the insanity plea. It's like, yes, he's guilty, but we want him deemed insane because he wouldn't go to prison. He'd go to Mendota um, Mental Health Institute for the rest of his life. wouldn't go to you know like a a max prison where they knew that was a death sentence he was going to get killed and he
0: did yeah like you said it screwed everybody up people don't realize like after the arrest is made those district attorneys they're looking at those photos they're reading transcripts (sighs) they're going (laughs) over the photographs and evidence with the detectives it's like it's not just you see it once and that's the end of it especially when something's going to trial it's almost like an nfl quarterback reading the playbook and getting his reps and they want to win that case. You know, oh, yeah. A lot, no one, no prosecutor or cop ever wants to lose a case. But with a homicide, you know, you, you don't want, not that Domino was ever going to get back on the street, but you don't want that person to get the second bite at the apple. So yes. that's why you get the best, you should usually get the best of the best with homicide detectives. Although every now and then you'll get a clown in there and the prosecutors, are supposed to metal sharpens metal. That's all they're prosecuting is homicides because they go backwards and forwards. And it burns them out. And to see something like that, it's like homicide, and homicide, homicide. And then you come across, like you said, Ugh. Polaroids of him drilling holes in people's heads and all yep. that shit. I'm sure it really fucked up a lot of people. Oh, it did. Yeah. The, there was so much fallout
1: from that. It was unbelievable. I And still to this day, I'm sure, it, you know, the effect that it had on those poor cops and, you know, fire department or whoever that was there, I, I can't even imagine.
0: Well, like you said, they were probably in a fog. You know, as a cop, you, you go to crime scenes and you're looking around like, yeah, this is bad. Something like that no one was prepared for. Like you said, no, they didn't even put no. the crime scene because they couldn't believe what they were seeing. You know, it's like, Correct. is this real? Like, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like even yep. for a cop, we're human beings and it, it it takes the mind sometimes a second to process. Is what, what, what the hell am I looking at?
1: Yeah, because like that neighborhood Changing is you – Changing know, one... Go ahead.
0: No, no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to
1: say, you know, in in that neighborhood, it's, you know, one gangster killing another one. That was a nightly ordeal. But for something like that, that's like completely out of left field where you're just like, holy shit, this is, I'll never see this again in my career. And, you know, I've never seen it before and I'll never see it
0: after. No, I mean, that's just something so out there. And the odds of a cop running into something like that again. Oh, (laughs) so I... Everybody's got an opinion of someone. I just figured because he worked in the PD over there that you might have known him. Well, after a time for law enforcement, you've kept quite busy. You recently started a, uh, you co-hosted a writer's conference at Fox Valley police Academy. What was that like?
1: Oh, that was a ton of fun. We called it cop camp. You know, it was the cops and writers, interactive uh, writers um, conference or something like that. And my wife is like, Oh, isn't that cute? You have cop camp. And I'm like, all right, honey, but everybody liked the name, so it's Cop Camp now. We we started last year, and we wanted an immersive experience. My uh, partner in crime for that is RJ Beam, and he is a uh, an instructor at Fox Valley, and he's also you know he's a sworn police officer, and he's a writer as well, and he's like you know there are some things like this but they're big there's like 2 or 300 people not everybody gets a chance to do everything that they want to do you know yada yada he's like let's do a small one let's do a small version of this you know we're not competing with anybody we're just we just want to help out riders so it was at the police academy and it went off so well like the first day we had a k9 and i think we only had about you know like 12 Uh, students so we we fit really nice and um, he used the lab that's his expertise is like CSI kind of stuff and everybody got to know each other really well everybody got along and like the first day we had a canine come in and you know I mean the canine's like right there but the handler was a very good public speaker you know he, he did a real good job and if anybody had questions they could ask him right away it was very interactive. Nobody got left in the dirt. And, you know, we had CSI stuff where we had a CSI tech that that's her job for Appleton PD, Fallon. And she did a outstanding job. You know, she's having them doing fingerprint stuff. She's showing them how to fume stuff. She's got trajectory rods, like if there's a shooting with, like, lasers sticking out of them and stuff. Oh, my God. it was that's It was cool. amazing. Yeah, and we also have the FATS machine where you're doing, like, shoot-no-shoot no shoot scenarios. Yeah. yeah, we're doing that. They also have – this place is ginormous. It's huge. You know, one half is fire, one half is police. They have two airplanes in back. One of them, you know, like the FBI's Hurt Team uses for tubular assaults. You know, they have another uh, fuselage that they set on fire for, so, you know, Sparky's can go, you know, put out um, plane fires. They have a little city. They actually have a little city in back with a hotel with like full size, a bank where you can do scenario training. And we put you know, we set up like three homicides at this motel. So, you know, our students <laughs> had to go in and solve the homicides. You know, it was just, oh, we just had so much fun. It went off a lot better than I had. He or I anticipated it was just a blast. It was so much fun, and we're going to do it again next year.
0: Are they going? To... That's just what I was going to ask you. Are they going to do it again next year?
1: Yeah, we're setting up the website and and as met... we speak.
0: Go ahead. All right, good. Yeah, and the next time I'll, I'll promote it. Just give me the heads up the next yeah. time it comes. Awesome. Around. And you and you and I met on your podcast, "Cops and Writers," where individuals from different backgrounds come out and talk about writing and police work tell us about that and where people can find that podcast
1: yeah it's on almost every platform you know apple uh stitcher i think is gone now it's uh you know it's on amazon alexa uh yeah just about anywhere you consume podcasts or you could get it direct from my website if you want to do it that way uh it's been a blast i've been doing it for about two and a half years now i've met some people that i never would have met you know, I met you, you know, I'm amazed by all these different people from all these different branches of law enforcement that are writing stories. And that's typically who I go for. But, you know, if you have an interesting story, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a cop. I've had uh, spies both on the CIA side and the KGB side, you know, it just, just, I, it, but it's opened up doors that never would have opened up for me before if I didn't have the podcast. It's a lot of work. It can be tedious. I mean, like before we hit record, you know, just tech stuff. I mean, that's the stuff that, you know, make you turn even grayer than you already are, but you know, it's been a lot of fun. And yeah, I, I hope, hopefully I'll keep on doing it for a while because I I, I truly enjoy doing it. And like I said, it's opened some doors that wouldn't have opened for me if I didn't do it.
0: It's, it's true. I mean, I learned that. I mean, I wrote several books and then I said, well, you know what? If I start a podcast, maybe I can use the podcast as a forum to promote my books. And then, like you said, you start meeting all these great people from law enforcement Yep. And we all speak the same lingo. It's a little different. It's a different accent. <laughs> I know. But we all speak yes. the same lingo. Speaking of which, before I forget, the last time you and I spoke on a podcast, I think you said a head injury where they put a bandage to your head. You guys call it gujo? Oh, oh gujo? A uh, uh, guju, uh, Gujo. Yeah, so it was you. funny. I didn't get a chance to tell you because I, that interview ended in the Bronx. We call it a turban or a Bronx party hat. A Bronx party hat. Oh, that's <laughs> I forgot funny. about that. I, I was like, it. I got to tell him that. I figured he'd get a kick out of that. Patrick, oh, that's You've funny. also written 10 books and established the Cops and Writers Facebook group to gauge interest in writing about police work. Tell us about your books, the titles, and where our listeners can find them.
1: Almost everything you could find on my uh, website, copsandwriters.com. I have, have written some books that are under pen names. I mean, this all started like on a whim because you could start, you could publish directly to Amazon. You don't have to have an agent or a publisher. You can be an indie, an indie author. And I didn't know that was a thing until about 2012, 2013, somewhere in that ballpark. And in my previous lives, (laughs) I sold cars for four years while I was waiting to become a cop. And then what happened was through, I've become a cop, but I have a lot of friends and relatives Is like, hey, could you come with me? Could you help me? And it's like, yeah, sure, no problem. Because, you know, I speak the lingo. I've been on the other end of the desk. You know, I, I know what it's like. And usually things turned out well if I did that. And people is like, you should really start a business or write a book about that. So I did. And it's not the best book. And I wrote it under a pen name because I didn't want to go through all the rigmarole with the department of getting it approved. Because you know what? That's like anything you do has to get approved. Any kind of off-duty employment. any You know, you don't have a private life if you're a cop. That's just the way it is. And you know that on the front end. But... Yeah, you know, my first book was, uh, I never wore plaid. Was it, uh, insider secrets from a former car salesman? And I, uh, I used the name of Joel Gray and it just popped into my head. Yeah. You know, so that was more or less a glorified PDF. You know, I threw it up on Amazon, eh, sold some copies, probably a few hundred. And that was about it. And then like every cop that's out there almost, I went through a pretty icky divorce. And I wanted to write a book to help other guys going through divorces, so I wrote a book called um, "Divorced Dad: Kids Are Forever, Wives Are Not," and I used a, a pen name of L.J. Burke for that one. And that sold okay, but I did not my, I did not do my due diligence in research. Not a lot of guys buy books with trying to research that as they're going through a divorce. Most of the people that read my divorce book were females there Were women, you know, and I actually sold a few to um, different divorce attorneys around town too. They're like, Yeah, this is a good book, I like this because it wasn't filled with venom, it was just hints and trying to help people through just a really crappy time. You know, like best practices for telling your kids, Hey, mom and dad are gonna get divorced, or what's the best way of breaking it to your spouse, or what's you know, just coping with co parenting stuff and all that, and just the mistakes that I made. and just you know kind of funny stories or whatever looking back i can chuckle now but i wasn't chuckling back then yeah <laughs> so i did that I and then i wrote a uh, post apocalyptic book cuz i like post post-apoc- post apocalyptic shows you know whatever like you know walking dead or whatever the case may be and that did okay i was in the middle of writing a sequel to that book and i started going to writer conferences and i i discovered 20 books to 50k which is the biggest indie author group in the world and i went to one of their conferences their first one and i didn't know anybody It was probably like three four hundred people maybe somewhere in that ballpark and people were coming up to me like at the social stuff and they're like oh you're that cop guy right and i'm like I'm not wearing a T-shirt. I don't have a banner, you know, across my head saying I'm a cop. But you know what that's like. Sooner or later, they just figure it out. Yeah. And hey, I've got this question. I've got this question. Could you help me with this? You know, my story is that. And I'm like, yeah, sure thing. So it just spawned from people asking me police questions that were writers. You know, they wanted to write better stories or more realistic stories, and I'm like you know, I'm in the middle of this sequel for this other book that's not really selling all that great. And I made friends in the business that knew a lot more than I did. And they're like, you should write some books for that. So I wrote the cops and writers books. You know, the first one is from the Academy to the street. The second one is crime scenes and investigations. And they're more or less tools for writers to get their facts straight. You know, when, you know, just basic stuff. Like what happens at a homicide scene? You know, who's doing what, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I started doing that. And at the same time, I'm like, I'm getting close to retirement and I'm a big believer in, you know, trying to jump ahead of the game a little bit, you know, just, uh, so I was, you know, dig the well before you're thirsty. That's, that's my motto. I I love that motto. You know, it's like, okay, what am I going to do when I leave? You know, I, I don't want to be a greeter at Walmart. I don't want to do another police job. I don't want to work security somewhere. So no. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, you know what? Hopefully the book thing will work out. Then to augment the book, I started a Facebook group called Cops and Writers. Same thing, just if people had questions about police stuff. And it was, at first it was like me and a couple of buddies and my editor. And now it's, I think, it's up to close to 6,500 people. So that, and then I did the podcast to augment that as well. And, you know, then I'm thinking to myself, well, what other books am I going to read? I'm right. And then I interviewed Craig Martell and Michael landerley There, Michael Anderle started 20 books to 50 K and he has a publishing company called LMBPN and they write mostly uh fantasy sci-fi military sci-fi that kind of stuff and i interview him and like going to a conference or anything else when i stopped recording we just started chatting i never really met him met him before and he's like you know i want to get into um you know crime fiction would you be interested before i know it now we're partners and i signed a six book deal with him so that's that's where the rest of the books are coming how from. How
0: many books have you written? And how? Oh, okay. And, and those books are on Amazon now.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, it's called Bruce City Blues. What that is, it's kind of like Hill Street Blues, but set in Milwaukee, and modern, okay. and it loosely follows my career path.
0: And those books are under your name, Patrick O'Donnell. My
1: name and Mike Landerly's. So yeah, if you, no, if just, you look I just under I my just name, so our
0: listeners, if they can go to Amazon. Yeah, yeah, if they absolutely. go to Amazon, they can find your books. Yeah, we're Amazon name. exclusive right now. Yeah. You ha- oh, that's the biggest and baddest cat out there as far as moving books. Yep, absolutely. That's about 80%. Patrick, Patrick. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Patrick, where can our listeners get a hold of you, people in law enforcement or people with interesting backgrounds, if they want to get a hold of you to do an interview?
1: You can email me
0: at uh, sarge
1: at copsandwriters.com. You can email me or just hit me up on Facebook. If, you, if you're in the group, just uh, DM me. You can direct message me. That's fine.
0: Either way. So my, so my listeners, check out Patrick's books. Check out his, his, um, his, his site on Facebook, Cops and Writers Facebook group. Patrick, thank you so much for spending time with us. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in, especially my listeners in Cincinnati, Ohio, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and and Pensacola, Florida. I've been getting a lot of hits on on, um, downloads from my uh, podcast. If you work in law enforcement and would like to be a guest on this show, drop me a note on Twitter or Instagram, at VicFerrari50. And if you've enjoyed the content, again, please check out my books on Amazon. Type in my name, Vic. Ferrari Like the Car, where you can preview all my books for free, including NYPD Law and Disorder. Thank you for tuning in, and I'll have another episode up next week. Thank
1: you, Vic Ferrari, and all of you who decided to check out today's show. It's always a good time chatting with Vic. Don't forget to check out Vic's podcast, NYPD Through the Looking Glass. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you take a minute and rate and review the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. Also, if you enjoy this episode, could you please share this show with family and friends? That is how we grow. As always, thank you for all of your support. And, of course, let's be careful out there.